Hello and welcome to the Hyperleadership Podcast. I am your host, David Morris, CEO and founder of Hyper Solutions, where our mission is to bring positive change to the world. Today, our guest is Stan Rowe. I got to know Stan a couple of years ago when we were researching career patterns of game-changing, high-impact leaders, or as we call them, hyperleaders. At the time, Stan was Chief Scientific Officer at Edwards Life Science. Stan's story stood out not just for the incredible innovation he brought to the medical field, which we'll hear a lot more about, but because of his ability to innovate and create within a large corporation. Stan emerged as a true intrapreneur. And like many of his fellow hyperleaders, Stan had to learn how to navigate, create, innovate within a corporate environment, which was not always easy. And yet his ability to focus on the mission and rebound from adversity at Edward Life Science helped propel the company from a split-adjusted stock price of $3 to over $50. Really an amazing, amazing story across a 14-year period of time. Well, hello, Stan. Welcome to Hyper Leadership. Thank you very much, David. So pleasure to be here. As we get into the story here, when Edwards acquired you, what business were they in and what business were they counting on you to help them evolve into? What was the the intent? So Edwards was the leading company in selling surgical heart valves around the world, which at the time was maybe an $800 million business. It's a very healthy business, and it takes a long time to build up that kind of capability for manufacturing and distribution and technology. They had a smaller business in critical care, and then they dabbled in a few other areas, but that was really their two key product lines, critical care products and surgical heart valves. The technology we were developing was disruptive to surgical heart valves, so disruptive that most people thought it wasn't possible to actually build or make these these new products work because they were a non-surgical approach. The place in a heart valve. Putting yourself in the shoes of the company, was that change clear in, in their mind that that's what they, they needed? Or did you have to convince them of it? Probably my best answer to that is when I called up Mike Masalem, who's a, just an amazing guy, it remains the CEO of Edwards Life Sciences. I called him up right before a medical device meeting that I knew he was going to attend. I said, Mike, let's have breakfast. He knew who I was. So he agreed to have breakfast. And after we had some cordial discussions, I said, well, you know, Mike, PVT, my company, should be an Edwards Life Sciences company. And Mike said, why is that? I said, well, I mean, it's clear to me that PVT offers both the biggest risk and the biggest opportunity to Edwards as the leading surgical heart valve company. If this works and you don't own it, it could be entirely disruptive to the company. And if it doesn't work, well, you may find a niche for it or something, but at least you would have control. And if it works and you do own it, it could open up a much larger opportunity for heart valves around the world. 
So we had that discussion, and I think that, to his credit, he was open to this idea, despite the fact, by the way, David, that his scientific advisory board advised him against purchasing EVT because they were cardiothoracic surgeons who were the experts in surgical treatment of aortic stenosis, and Mike went against their guidance to buy this, and I'll always give him huge credit for really embracing the innovator's dilemma, which is disrupting your own, your own market. So here's Mike, CEO of a publicly traded company providing medical devices to surgeons, to heart surgeons. And you have a market cap about a billion. All of a sudden, he's prepared to take a big bet. He doesn't come up with the idea. You knock on the door, you share the idea. And in fact, people are suggesting he doesn't do it, but he makes the bet. Okay. A company whose market cap now is over $40 billion, and this constitutes probably over 70% of the business. To your point, so much of this change is a leader who can't see that opportunity and more importantly, see the leader they can bet on like you to make it happen. So the company's acquired for what? A hundred and what million? Well, 125 million, and then we earned another 10 million in earnout, so 135 million. So imagine this you're paying 150 million or so for something that ultimately adds over 30 billion dollars to the market cap, but even more importantly, is saving millions of lives or hundreds of thousands of lives around the world. Yeah, it's had a tremendous impact for sure. Hundreds of thousands of patients have now received transcatheter heart valves. It's uh, pretty pretty daunting to th- even think about that. Completely. And it's one of these classic stories of, of, of doing well by doing good. And what can we learn? What advice can you provide from what you experienced on what it's like to be an entrepreneur? You show up on day one, you're disrupting other parts of the organization. Were there people that, frankly, were scared? They thought this would almost disrupt their own jobs? Well, I don't think everyone at Edwards thought this was a good idea. I think that the surgical heart valve group, which was the majority of their business, was about as skeptical about this technology as their scientific advisory board was. They reflected the perspectives of the cardiothoracic surgeons that they serve in the market. I remember somebody telling me that they worked in that division and they asked their supervisor about the acquisition and the supervisor said, don't worry about it, it's not going to happen during your career. I think that was not an unusual perspective that maybe they thought Mike had made a bad purchase. So I don't think there was a total support across the company, but I think that That's the nature of disruptive technology, both internally and externally, that over time you have to drive a vision for this. I got to say the, you know, the management team that I worked with, the executive group, was very receptive and very, very accommodating for me to come in and join them as an outsider, as many of them had, you know, worked together for a number of years. So uh, I was very grateful for that. Did you ever imagine you were going to stay there 14 years? (laughs) Uh, No, I didn't. I thought like many CEOs, I would just hang around for a couple of years, hopefully make sure that the handoff was successful, 
and probably go on to do my next startup or something. But this is where, you know, Mike made a place for me. Even when I kind of handed off this technology at some level to uh, Larry Wood, who worked for me, who became the head of that business unit. I mean, I remained connected with those guys very closely. But I went on to create kind of an entrepreneurial unit within Edwards called Advanced Technologies with the goal of creating, you know, the next new breakthroughs and focused in areas where Edwards had a strategic interest. Mike was very supportive of trying to create an environment where we could actually do big innovation in a big company, which is pretty much unheard of. So it's Bell Labs. <laughs> and what were some of the key components of it? I mean, if you're sitting out there, you're a CEO, you're president of a country, you know, you have a huge organization, and all of a sudden you bring in an innovator. You hire them, you acquire them, you have an innovator, they have a vision. What are some of the things that can be done to really allow the opportunity for that organization to disrupt itself, innovate, break new ground? I would say the number one thing that inhibits big companies is the risk of failure. I mean, I think about, about a, a great VC, a venture capitalist may have, out of 10 investments, he may have two that are really successful and maybe one or two more that kind of break even. I mean, that's an outstanding record for a venture capitalist. And of course, their job is to do big innovation. Well, why would you expect a big company that's doing big innovation to do much better? I think you have to embrace the risk. And when you embrace the risk that not everything's going to work, you have to have some way to deal with failure in a way that makes it acceptable as part of the process. And I think this is where big companies fail. They have not figured out how to embrace the failure that comes with innovation. It scares them to death. Things don't work. They put their money in things that are predictable. They don't know how to deal with the group that failed. Are, are they failures? Or did the device not perform? Or did the technology not perform? If you don't support the people in a way that embraces the innovation, if you don't support the people that are embracing this kind of innovation, then you will never get that innovation internally. That means you have to be able to say, okay, we're going to kill this project. You guys work really hard. You did an amazing job. I'm really proud of you. You did exactly what we asked you to do. But we're going to close it down because it's not doing what we expected it to do. And we're going to move on and do the next one. And you guys are going to make that successful. I don't know of companies that do that today. One of the questions that's probably going on in a lot of CEOs' minds right now is, hey, Stan's a very entrepreneurial guy. How do I hire someone like that? How do I acquire that person's business and, and keep them engaged here? Back to when you were at J&J. &J. How many years were you at J&J? &J? 13. Okay. And a lot of people say someone like a Stan, it was inevitable. He was going to leave and start his own business. But a company like J&J, &J, could they in fact have retained you long term? If they'd had an environment like this and you could have been an entrepreneur within it, could you have stayed at the same company for all these years? Absolutely. I mean, I love the culture there. They're very patient oriented. 
They believe in long-term investment. And I'd say the same is true of the medical device companies, the Medtronics, the Boston Scientifics, the Abbots. Creating innovation, I think there's an opportunity to keep people to do this, but you have to be able to deal with those cultural issues around risk-taking, failures, and investing longer term. That does make it challenging. What was the trickiest decision, maybe for both you, Mike, and the executive team early on, you know, the first couple of years when you first joined, what was sort of that moment that you know, maybe the whole project could have been killed? And how did, the, how did ultimately the culture of innovation prevail and prevent it from not, uh, not going forward? I would say, number one, in every project runs into two key obstacles. That's how we deal with those obstacles, both creatively and culturally, that really, really matters. And we had our share. I mean, we had things that didn't go right. We had some, we had some big challenges. I remember when we tried to translate our early clinical work in Europe to the U.S., where there was, frankly, less background in some of the imaging and approaches. And we couldn't make it translate. We had some early failures in our clinical studies just after we had invested a lot in getting approval from the FDA, which was very challenging. And I had to walk into the executive leadership team meeting and tell them that we were going to stop our clinical trial in the U.S. and entirely redo our approach to implanting the valve. And it took, I don't know, nine or 10 months, I think, of putting that clinical on ice. I would say some companies would have just folded it up. But I think that's the kind of commitment and persistence that's required in big innovation to ultimately succeed. And imagine what they would have been foregoing if, if we had just closed up shop when we had those troubles. The growth opportunity for Edwards would have been much diminished, and somebody else would have picked it up, which would have been really sad. So, yeah, you have to, be, you have, to have a level of persistence. And that decision-making between, is it time to kill it? Or is it time to, to reinvest in it and take it to the next level? There's no good handbook on it. So it's always a tough, tough decision. At that moment, what was the role that you had to play? Did you have to make a case to the group? Was this more of a one-on-one thing? What, what personal battle did you have to deal with at that moment? Great question, David, because I think ultimately it's kind of like we go back to, I was talking about venture capital. A lot of it has to do with who's leading the effort and do you believe in them? And do you believe in their capability to solve the problem? I think that's a lot of it is I had to put my credibility on the line and say, guys, we, we can do this. We can solve this. Here's how we're going to do it. Here's the approach we're going to take. And here's the consequence. Yeah, it's going to, it's disappointing to me. I know it's disappointing to you. It'll be disappointing to Edwards Life Sciences investors, but we're in this for the long game. And if we're in this for the long game and there are patients to be served and big growth opportunities, let's just go do it. 
as related to your team as well as your stakeholders, how did you have to evolve uh, leading them, you know, as opposed to when you were at the startup? Well, I think the <laughs> the hardest thing for me in managing these multiple programs is the day I have to go in and kill a project. There's no project team that will ever walk into my room and say, we've run out of options. I don't think we can make this work. It's time to kill it. That never happens. So somebody has to throw the flag and and kill a project at some point in time. So I think how you kill projects really matters. I kind of learned how to do that in a way that was respectful of the teams and inculcated a culture that allowed for innovation. And I think that is very, very critical to creating an innovation culture within a company. As you sort of reflect back and you think about the ultimate playbook for entrepreneurship, first off, it's being able to identify and recruit the entrepreneur, as Mike did with you in the end. And then there's a matter of how you operate within the organization. We talked about Clayton Christensen principles, but ultimately you probably evolved them. You developed new ones. And wondering what you think a few of the things when that organization was operating at its peak, just some of the principles that really allowed just that incredible growth of the business. So I think there's at some level that freedom to fail and try again is really critical. I think recognizing innovators and innovation culture is critically important. One of the things that I tried to do was to institute a system for recognizing those behaviors, cultures, and accomplishments that drove the kind of cultural acceptance of innovation internally. I would say the other thing was just kind of the financial side, that is investing in that long-term disruptive vision. It can't be a short-term. You can't say, well, we're going to try this for two years and see if it works. I think you just have to dedicate some percentage of your revenues or R&D budget to that and make sure that you have the right people to drive it is really critically important. I'm trying to picture what it would have been like uh, when all of this got approved by the FDA and you were scaling this out. And you know, as we think about the company's market cap going from a billion to almost 50 billion, as it sort of took off altogether, is what your role is. Because you, you talk in a very level-headed manner in portfolio management and the right culture and a lot of these basics. Just like you had that excitement at the startup stage and the key bets you had to make and all, what was sort of just that most critical moment driving your team, managing the stakeholders? Yeah, so I, I, uh, when you talk about launch, I think about the privilege of standing in front of a bunch of salespeople who are going to go out and promote this product and tell them the story of developing this innovation and how challenging it was but how important it is for patients, the impact that it has on patients, giving them an opportunity to have a procedure that's life-saving. These kinds of uh, biomedical 
companies, when we have the privilege of launching something that's truly life-saving, it's pretty rare. I I am hopefully fairly level-headed, but I can be pretty enthusiastic, too, when it comes to things that really impact patients. Those are times I can definitely remember. I have also been asked to speak at many major medical meetings where I have the opportunity to hopefully talk to physicians about the value of partnering to develop these new innovative technologies. And that's also critical. We don't do these things in a vacuum. We do this typically in a close coordination with key physicians that have unique insights. So that kind of partnership is just critical as well. Those really help drive innovation. As we conclude, and you put yourself in the shoes of a Fortune 500 CEO or a governor of a state who is trying to drive major change, what are just some of the traits they should seek out in that leader they're going to bet on to be able to orchestrate all this? I talk about one of the key attributes of innovation is you have to be a little bit of a nihilist. You have to be able to look at the world and say, come on, can't we do better than that? And and I think that really has to do with the status quo of that that we accept so so readily, that zeitgeist that sits on us that makes us accept kind of the way we do things. Making that change is difficult. It requires a lot of communication skills to let people see the vision of where we're going. And then it requires the leadership and persistence to actually make that happen. And organizations can be resistant, but it is steering a ship. Over time, they will definitely change and they will definitely see it as we repeat it. We start showing progress and everyone gets on board with a kind of a different vision for what what we can be and how we can be better. We have to have a place for those nihilists in our company, even though they can, they can be, I'll say it, they can be somewhat annoying sometimes, <laughs> but without people saying, we can do better than this, we never get better. It seems like you had that trait. And again, you express it in a very calm way right now, though I know your mind is quite vibrant. You had that trait. You also had the trait, though, that you could bring along your peers. You could bring along the medical community. There was all these stakeholders that you were able to bring along. And I am wondering, 2020 hindsight, what CEO who brought you on board may have seen in you to realize that not only you had the drive, but you had the ability to really bring the people along. I think a lot of this is persistence. A lot of this is transparency. You have to be comfortable with sharing everything and really being yourself. I'm not the guy who's seeking attention. I just want to make it happen. And I think sometimes those guys get overlooked. I'm, I'm not interested in politics in companies. I like having friends, like communicating, joking around, but I'm, I'm not interested in the political intrigue I see in a lot of companies. And I think spotting those people who are very earnest about their mission, and especially those who are focused on innovation and changing the status quo, is really critical. And I think 
being able to lead an organization through that, again, just takes a lot of transparency and communication and uh, hiring the right people. Clearly, one of the things that we've observed a lot is that hyperleaders are under-political. They're mission-driven. They're so under-political that sometimes they're not even noticed. And that's why I want the audience really to be able to see with someone like Stan is you can, you can look at the history of Edward Life Sciences and really see the amazing accomplishment of how they literally changed this entire way in which instead of heart surgeons needing to do these procedures, cardiologists could. Correct me if I'm wrong here. It really redefined it. And being able to find a leader like a Stan, it may not be obvious. It may not be obvious. And, and they could be working at the company and Stan would have stayed at J&J if he, if he had this type of mission or opportunity. They don't need to just go off and start their own organization. They actually want to be part of a larger organization because the scale's greater to be able to bring their, their vision to the world. Identifying this leader, being able to have the air cover for them, ultimately, this is what, this is what brings innovation to the world. Thank you, Stan. It's a real pleasure, David. You do remind me that one of my stents at J&J was developing the first coronary stents, which was incredibly innovative for J&J. But the way it happened was they created a small unit and they put it outside of the core structures of their other business units. And they grew it and adapted it under a great leader there. But then um, I haven't actually seen them reproduce that kind of innovative structure. So I do think it's possible in big companies, but I think that kind of remote development capability enhances your chances for success. And before we go, some traits in that leader that you might recall, that great leader? That great leader was Marv Woodall, who's still a dear friend of mine. And Marv could work across a number of boundaries, right? So I think in our field, you have to kind of be able to manage the research and development and engineering side, the medicine, working with the clinicians, and then kind of the corporate structure. I think you need those broad capabilities to be a great leader in that kind of structure, and especially in J&J, historically has been fairly political. He did an amazing job of that. Well, there you have it. A classic example of an entrepreneur uh, may not be obvious to find them, but they do exist. And the ability for air cover to exist at the top for that individual, especially for when there's major setbacks. And to our hyperleadership listeners, thank you for your continued support and feedback. Stay tuned this season for incredible stories of game change from other hyperleaders. And if you haven't already done so, please subscribe to the Hyperleadership Podcast. And of course, if you have a big program that you're leading, Transformation, visit our website to learn more about how we work with organizations going through change at hypersolutions.com. <laughs>